The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Today we are talking about faithful witness. We're talking about the relationship between your faithful witness, between the philosophies of the world, and your mission as fishers of humanity. And we need a model because we're at a time when there's a lot of voices telling us how to go about meeting people in the highways and the byways and bringing them into the faith. There's methods. There's entire schools. I I attend conferences regarding missions. And it's, it's right that we should spend a little time contemplating this. You are here, at least partially by compulsion. But I'm going to try not to waste your time. You have a few years here to get some things together. And it is my hope that our scriptures today will help us get it together. So that when you are released upon the world, that you go in the light of our Lord Jesus Christ and his ingenious wisdom in scripture. I don't want you to think that what it means to be a Christian in the world in the expression of what the scriptures is forming you into is somehow deficient because it's not. Uh, Martin Luther and Desiderius Erasmus had a conversation and one of Luther's great works was the bound will. Uh, You might know it as the bondage of the will. And this is a conversation between Erasmus and Luther about the place, really, of the great Greek philosophers in the Christian life. And it was Erasmus's idea that, that Athens had lots to teach Jerusalem, that God planted in Athens great, natural theology. And Luther was having none of it. He, he called Erasmus solution. I, I don't know if, you're, uh, if you guys read a lot of classics, but that's one of the pigs of Epicurus's herd. <laughs> uh, and he was saying, um, no, we are asserters of reality and of fact. The Holy Spirit is no skeptic. This is important for us to understand. Let's bear that in mind a little bit as we go to Scripture. We find Paul in Athens in Acts 17 Beginning at verse 16, I I tend to read long passages of Scripture because I think context is deeply important. But we will focus in on on the aspects of this exchange 
that I hope, that I pray will be most useful for you in this coming year as you hone yourselves into Christians in this world. Here now, the word of God. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, and he saw that the city was full of idols. So, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing some new thing. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that you are in every way you are a religious people. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps to feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man? The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by the raising of him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, 
among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Thus far the reading of the New Testament. I've listened to great men exposit this passage. Certainly any of you can type into a search engine and get dozens of really erudite. Why is it erudite, by the way? There's no Y in there. Erudite? Erudite? Anybody know? Learned. We'll just say that. You can get dozens of learned opinions about this passage, many of which will disagree. And I myself have preached this passage at least three times. (laughs) Once concentrating on our common humanity from verse 26, right? And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Uh, And once on the dangers of idolatry from the beginning of the passage. More commonly, though, I talk about this passage in regards to apologetics. Now, some of you take apologetics with uh, Professor Plummer, who... I also count a friend. (laughs) Uh, And there's plenty, I believe, apologetically in this passage. Apologetics, for those who haven't taken it yet, is, is the reasoned defense of the faith. It's the philosophical defense of the faith. What I hope to give you today is, is kind of an apologetic approach to this passage that also concentrates on what Paul concentrated on, which is the mission. The mission. What is our mission? Let's, let's look back at Matthew 28. We are on the basis of the authority of Jesus Christ to go, and I'm going to use the King James here only because I think they get this part right, to go and to teach the nations and to make disciples of them through baptism and then to continue teaching them. Our job is the teacher as Christians because we have a revelation of truth that is uncompromising and it is based upon the authority of Jesus Christ himself. And in our discussions today, and hopefully by the end of this discussion today, we'll have a little bit of idea of the stakes. But we need a method. So let's take a look at Paul's method. We're going to answer three questions today. One, to whom was Paul speaking? In what manner did he approach them? And then how are we authorized to act in similar circumstances? So let's begin with to whom Paul was speaking. Paul was speaking to everyone. To everyone. He was what what our forefathers of the faith called promiscuous with the gospel, right, Uh, uh, from from the language of the Synod of Dort, right, 
go and preach the gospel without discrimination to every single person. And there's a sense in which we're to encounter people because Paul, he's in the marketplace. He's just where people gather. And he's talking to anyone. Now, among those who you will find in places like marketplaces will be some very learned people. Don't be afraid. What you have is solid. It is rock solid. It stands to the scrutiny of philosophy. So who were these learned people? They were Stoics and Epicureans. Now, you remember when we talked about Luther and Erasmus at the beginning of this, Erasmus's point was that Christians were the true Epicureans. So what's an Epicurean? Uh, there were hedonists, right? The hedonists, they, um, they said that, that the aim, the true aim of humanity was to reduce suffering as much as possible and engage in pleasure as much as possible. But Epicureans were a little more discerning. Um, Epicureans were concerned with the best pleasures, the greatest pleasures. So you might expect then that if virtue is a pleasure, that a good conscience, let's put it that way, that there's really nothing more pleasurable than a good conscience. So having a good conscience is a pleasure, and that, and that then would be the highest pleasure, and we should go for that. So you can see how Erasmus might see that as a window to the divine. We, we can't disagree that Christ is, in fact, the greatest good. He is the beautiful one. He's the, we, we sang three Songs today, expressing our exuberance for this God who we love. He is the beautiful thing. The last time I spoke here, we talked about his genius in harmonizing our lives and its incredible beauty. And turning even the dark places in our lives into a symphony to his glory. But part of this is that Luther calls this a theology of glory. And he would contrast this with a theology of the cross. So instead of finding ourselves looking to pleasure as the key, we look to the cross, which is suffering and debasement and repentance and it's in the cross, be my glory ever, as the song goes. I want to sing it to you, but I won't. And who are the Stoics? You might actually be surprised that there is a renaissance of Stoicism going on, and it's, and it's happening in those business communities, and especially the tech business communities, that are rampant with atheism. Stoicism is a materialistic 
philosophy that all things are material. Even virtues are material. And what Stoicism offers is is a sort of organized thought about the human person that lets you engage in the city, lets you engage in, in politics, the polis, the ways that we live together. And as you're engaging in those things, you also consider yourself a citizen of the world. Is this starting to sound familiar? A citizen of the world, a cosmopolitan? So the Stoics tend to be cosmopolitan. So there's a revival of this in the world. It's actually uh, something that you will run into. So this is who he's addressing, Stoics and Epicureans. And they have some civil authority. He, he was brought before them to a place called the Areopagus. So what was the Areopagus? The Areopagus was the highest court in the land, according to N.T. Wright, who I'm quoting merely as a historian, not a theologian. It's, it was the highest court in the land. So I would liken this to a police stop uh, on the highway. Right? It wasn't a trial. It wasn't a, his life wasn't on the line in the moment. But it had teeth. You see, if the police officer pulls you over on the freeway and, and says, have you had anything to drink tonight? That's a question with teeth. You're not under arrest. You're not before a judge who actually has authority to uh, take your freedom from you and such. But you should answer well. And it's good if you haven't been drinking. So what are they asking him? They're asking him, are you a teacher of foreign gods? Right? There, were two, there were two things that were said in our passage as we read. One was, here somewhere. First off, they said, who is this babbler, right? Something, there's an insult hidden in that. Uh, seed picker was the term, and it meant uh, that you just gathered scraps of information and spoke of them. Uh, the way that maybe a beggar picks up food off the ground at the marketplace. You pick up ideas, and suddenly you are... Uh, speaking of them with certain authority and it's authority you don't have and it doesn't go very deep and you don't have the wealth of the actual knowledge and teaching. So this babbler. Then he said, uh, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Well, someone else went to the Areopagus for teaching foreign divinities Socrates, you guys remember that guy? And uh, he was found guilty of doing just that and corrupting the youth, and in doing those things, he had to commit suicide. So 
there's some teeth here. This isn't the trial. This is just getting pulled over. But they had authority to bring him before the Areopagus, and that's what they did. Did Paul respond then? How did Paul respond? Did he respond to the insult? Did he ask for redress of the insult? No. He went directly to them and their needs. How? Did he quote Moses, the law, to them? No. Who did he quote? Here. In him we live and move and have our being. Who said that? Is that in the Old Testament? No. That's their guys. What about, for indeed we are his offspring? It's both of these statements are true of the living God, yes? In him we live and move and have our being, and indeed we are his offspring. Adam was the son of God, and doubly so in Christ. But who are these quotes about? These are Eratus and Epimenides. These, these are their guys. And who are their guys talking about? Zeus. Now, are you allowed to do that? Are you allowed to know their stuff, quote their guys, understand them well, and towards the fishing of men, turn what's true and what they say into a gospel presentation that asks for repentance and proclaims the resurrection? if you are learned and stable. Now this is your task. This is now your task. The ball is now in your court. You are going to go into the world and somebody's going to approach you with the idea of artificial intelligence or race. And if you don't know their stuff, I promise you they will tie you in a knot. And it is better for you defer, to defer to the learned and to the stable in those cases. But you are here at a Christian university where you have the opportunity to grasp knowledge you get to know history. You get to know these philosophies that will come. Let me just give an example, and I promise I'm going to quit soon. By show of hands, who believes that the human mind is best given analogy to a computer? Raise your hand if you think that the best analogy for the human mind is a computer. 
least one guy's honest. Almost all of us have heard that example and kind of buy it. But I promise you that no computer has ever so much as added two numbers together. We have added two numbers together using computers. And the architecture of a computer is not the architecture of a human mind. But if you don't know this, and if you don't know what Jaron Lanier calls the religion of artificial intelligence, then you'll never understand why you give up all your data with the touch of a button to your social media accounts. It's not to make Google a better advertiser. It might be a little bit. But Lanier points out that it's in service of creating a new intelligence called artificial intelligence that will surpass us in every particular and in some cases have a messianic kind of ending where it solves all of our problems. We need to not worry so much about race or global warming or any of these things that, that plague our society because the AI will fix it once it just finally becomes sentient like Skynet or whatever. And it, and it sells to us because we love the movies and we love this story and it really does tell a good story. The Matrix and Terminator and all these, it does spin a good yarn. But it is not true. But it's so important that last year, uh, one of the biggest seminaries, uh, Union Theological Seminary, had, had a conference on artificial intelligence. And a couple of years ago, Notre Dame had an entire colloquium on the nature of the mind and the soul. Are you ready for that conversation? Are you ready to extricate yourself from its influence on you even? These are the kinds of learning that you need. So what do you do if, you're, if you don't know and you're not learned? You are to know Christ and him crucified. All of us are going to run into somebody smarter, somebody who's read more guys, somebody who has an original idea we've never heard of before. We'll all run into that. And in that case, in that case where we haven't had a chance to work it through or, or we just don't feel gifted to work it through, Maybe our gifting is in hospitality. Maybe our gifting is encouragement. Maybe somebody else's gifting is in apologetics. But we can all know Christ and Him crucified. Let's take a look at what happens at the end and then I'm done. Now, when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, some mocked. Wait a minute. Didn't he just call them ignorant because they worshiped something they didn't know? They didn't mock that. Didn't, they, didn't he just call them blind because God is really near them, but they're stumbling around in the dark, 
feeling their way possibly to find him. And he came to proclaim just that God to them. Didn't he sort of, in the most polite way, tell them clearly of the deficiencies of their philosophies? I think he did. But they didn't balk at any of that. What did they balk at? The resurrection from the dead. You see, Paul didn't have to add a single insult. He did not have to respond to a single name calling, seed picker. He was imperturbable in that sense because it, is it about Paul? Or is it about Christ? Christ is a big boy on the intellectual scene. He can take care of himself in a scrap. And he does. I promise you he does. The Bible is genius at explaining your world. You need to have some confidence in that. You need to believe that the God who saved you is 100% able to equip you to do exactly what it is that he has asked of you to do. And what was that again? To teach the nations to baptize people, and then to do what? Continue to teach them. We are not the religion of the ignorant. We just know that God has spoken, and what he has spoken is true. In your days, seek after God. Get knowledge. And when they come to you, with a human theology of race or a human theology of intelligence or a human theology of right and wrong, good and evil, you are ready not to win the argument, but to win men for Christ. Say amen. Let's pray. Father, you're merciful. You know that we are sheep. You know that we could be blown about by every wind of doctrine. But your word promises that, that if we're blown astray, you'll come find us, that you're faithful, that you gather us, that, that, that we'll know your name, that we'll recognize you. Oh God, make yourself known to us in this day. Let us see you in every effort that we have to seek knowledge. Let us seek you in it. Because the good and the true and the beautiful are all convertible terms. And you are the beautiful one. And you are the true. And you are indeed the good. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.